Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. James Sonny Buchanan killed behind the Fitzgerald Auto Mall. A man was shot dead tonight while pumping gas. James Martin, 55 years old, was shot at the Shoppers Food Warehouse. Yet another sniper shooting. Just after 8 o'clock tonight when he was shot. Killed at the Shell gas station this morning in Kensington. Conrad Johnson. This one happened just 50 yards from a state police officer. His latest victim, a 13-year-old boy, is in critical condition, fighting for his life. Chaos outside Benjamin Tasker Middle School this morning. I ain't wanted to die like that. Bus driver and father of two. Police are looking for a sharpshooter who has struck again. Shot to death outside the post office near Leisure World in Silver Spring. What is going on out here? The sniper's latest victim, a father of six from the Philadelphia area. A deadly shooting with eerie similarities to the others. Police this afternoon are no closer to catching the killer. If what you just heard didn't make a lot of sense, it's just a glimpse of what it was like living near the nation's capital in the fall of 2002. The fear, the uncertainty, the tension remains high. These were the details regularly playing in the news. The names of the victims, what they were doing, when they were shot, and where it happened. These attacks, often dubbed the DC Sniper Attacks or Beltway Sniper's Case, happened at different times of the day in different towns and states, encompassing a hundred mile radius and targeting young, old, white, black, men, women, and even children. In fact, as the attacks progressed, it seemed the only consistent factor in the killer's targets was that they were people. A palpable fear gripping the community. This was happening a little more than a year after the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. The people of the East Coast, particularly the D.C. area and New York, were already vulnerable. There was an odd mix in the air of fear, cautious defiance, and united resolve. On one hand, we all became intensely aware that death could come for us or anyone we cared about literally out of the sky. Meanwhile, we were determined not to let other people's disgust for America imprison us in a world afraid to do the things we did every day and experience life. For a while, we put aside all of the differences that are imposed upon us as human beings. Race, gender, and financial standing didn't matter. We were Americans, and we were all focused on getting the bad guys, rebuilding what they had torn down, and showing the world, and each other, that life matters, and a life of freedom without fear is the great American way. To understand what happened in 2002, we need to travel back in time and about a thousand miles south to New Year's Eve 1960, where John Allen Williams was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. John's mother had cancer and died when he was three years old. His father left the family not long after, and John was raised by his aunt and his maternal grandfather. In 1978, John joined the Army National Guard in Louisiana and went active in 1985. Around the same time, he converted to Islam and would go by the name John Allen Muhammad. He served as an Army combat engineer in the Gulf War. He would go on to reach the rank of sergeant and received an honorable discharge in April of 1994, while stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington State. Sources from the Pentagon have said that John qualified as an expert marksman with his engineering unit. Expert is the highest of three marksmanship ratings. To qualify as an expert, an applicant must, in a timed sequence, hit 36 of 40 targets at a variety of ranges from 50 meters to 300 meters. 
Despite a seemingly respectable military career, John found himself a part of two failed marriages. In 1981, he married a woman known as Carol Williams. They had a son, Lindbergh, but the couple separated in 1985 and later divorced. One of Carol's sisters has said that the couple had a bitter custody dispute over their son. She also told Good Morning America that their son visited John during the summer of 1994, but did not return to his mom until she got a court order. John had decided he was going to keep the boy longer than the agreed amount of time, and apparently his mother had to get lawyers to get the boy back from John. John stayed in Washington State after leaving the Army. He remarried, and he and his second wife, Mildred, had three children, a son and then two daughters. Their marriage was happy at first. By all accounts, things were good. John was a decent husband and father at that time. But when the war was over, Mildred claims that John came back a different person than the man she married. Things got tense between them as she felt John slipping further away, and he would behave oddly more and more frequently. John apparently became so abusive that his wife not only left, but also obtained a restraining order against him. However, John still had visitation rights with their children. When she applied for the restraining order, Mildred wrote that she was afraid of John. Quote, he was a demolition expert in the military. He is behaving very, very irrational. Whenever he does talk with me, he always says that he's going to destroy my life. End quote. A threat like this has to be taken seriously, but it must be particularly frightening when it comes from someone who has the training and skills to end lives. While they were separated, John broke into her house one night. As if that's not frightening enough, he had a chilling message for the mother of his children. Quote, you have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. End quote. Isn't that just charming? The judge who issued the protection order barred John from contacting his wife and the couple's children, but the order still allowed John to have scheduled visitation with the kids. Shortly after the restraining order was issued, John kidnapped their children. He took the kids and fled to Antigua, where he would earn money by becoming a serial forger. John supplied forged U.S. birth certificates, driver's licenses, and other documents for Jamaicans and other migrants looking to enter the U.S. illegally. In Antigua, John met Lee Boyd Malvo. Lee was a teenage boy doing well in school, despite living alone in a plywood shack without electricity or running water. As a young boy, he was described as happy, friendly, a people pleaser. Due to work and life struggles, Lee's parents were not a constant in his life. Lee claims that by the age of five, he had basically become a punching bag for his mother. His mother paints a different picture, one of a single mom struggling to support her children. Lee's father, who has been described as the more nurturing parent who would step in when Lee's mother was too harsh with him, lived apart from the family. He says Lee wanted to live with him, but that wasn't possible because he was traveling back and forth to and from another island for work. Whether you believe Lee's version of the story or that of his mother or father or some combination of the three, one thing was clear. His mom would be in and out of his life and his father was not present, leaving a void in his life, a hole in his heart, which would create a dangerous opening that was exploited by John Muhammad beginning with a chance meeting at an electronic shop near the end of the year 2000 in Jamaica. John was a regular at Zaza Electronics. The owners of the shop describe John as personable and tell of him helping others and becoming somewhat of a local hero. 
sharing his knowledge of fixing cars and machining parts in an era before YouTube tutorials when access to knowledge of how to solve everyday problems was much harder to come by even in big cities, much less the underdeveloped areas of the world. John visited Zaza Electronics late in the year 2000 looking to get a digital camera repaired. He was there with his children. At Zaza, Lee saw John with his kids and it was like a starving child seeing a Happy Meal. Lee recalls thinking in that moment, I want that. He desperately wanted a father, and John was right there, being everything he longed for. Following that random encounter at the electronics store, Lee would become like a son to John, and John like a father to Lee. Their relationship would quickly evolve to a point where John was disciplining and teaching Lee all the time. John forged documents for Lee's mother, who, remember, was kind of in the picture out of the picture, to get into the United States. She would head there to try and work to earn more money and create better opportunities for herself and her family. With his mother gone to America, Lee would fully attach himself to John. He moved in with John. He converted to John's version of Islam. He soaked up everything John taught him. By the spring of 2001, John's occupation was catching up with him. Authorities were looking for him, and he had to spend time hiding out in other places, leaving his biological children and Lee alone for days. They needed to get out. Toward the end of May 2001, John and all of the kids would fly into Miami. John forged documents for Lee so he could enter the U.S. with them. Lee reunited with his mother in Florida while John and his kids went on to Washington State. Lee started attending high school in Florida, and he did so well on a college entrance pretest that a school counselor encouraged him to take the SATs. But Lee would need a social security number to do that. He did not have one. His mother contemplated John legally adopting Lee so that he could enjoy the benefits of being a U.S. citizen. Namely, he would be able to go to college. She even bought a bus ticket for Lee to go to John from Florida to Washington State. But she changed her mind about it all and hid the ticket. Lee knew where his mother had hidden the ticket, and in October, he got it and ran away to John. Meanwhile, in Washington, John was struggling. He was trying to support himself and his kids, staying in hotels and with friends, working odd jobs, and just trying to piece it all together, one day at a time. Remember when John originally left Washington, he was only supposed to have his kids for a day, but instead he kidnapped them and disappeared for a year or so. Well, as you might imagine, Mildred felt some kind of way about this, and she didn't just sit on her hands with the kids gone. She got a divorce finalized, had the court award her full custody of the kids, and even had the court issue a writ of habeas corpus, which is just a fancy Latin term for get this person, literally produce the body. That would come in handy when John enrolled the kids in school in August of 2001. Local authorities would pick up the kids and reunite them with Mildred. This time around, she wasn't playing. She wasn't taking any chances. Within a matter of days, Mildred and the kids moved from Washington State to the suburbs of Washington, D.C. They had effectively disappeared. This would completely unravel John. He searched to find where Mildred had taken them to no avail. At least one of John's friends said after the kids were gone, John fell apart. He was crying extensively, and the friend, who was also an army buddy, thought John was having some kind of nervous breakdown. Now, just as the storm of emotion and chaos was reaching its crescendo, guess who showed back up on John's doorstep? 
Lee Boyd Malvo. Technically, it wasn't John's doorstep because John was staying in a mission, but that is where Lee showed up. John introduced Lee to folks there as his oldest son, even though they knew John's oldest son had to be much older than the 15-year-old Lee. Lee was going to school in Washington, and in the evenings, John was providing him with a different kind of education. The pair would lift weights at the YMCA and go shooting at a local gun range. They watched movies like The Matrix and an instructional videotape titled Carlos Hathcock, Marine Sniper, time and time again. Others at the mission saw signs that the relationship had evolved in an unhealthy way. Lee wouldn't speak without getting a nod from John that it was okay. They were always together, but isolated from everyone else. People from that time say that John seemed to have total control over Lee. Being a father seems very important to John, and he's had his kids taken from him. Lee desperately wants a father, but his father wasn't available and now is in a different country. Together, they would fill the voids that each had, but it would end very badly for them and everyone in their path. At the same time, Lee's mother was trying to track him down. She ended up getting a hold of John, but he had no interest in helping her get her son back. Her son Lee, after all, was his devoted follower and soon-to-be partner in crime, or instrument of crime, depending on how you look at it. So Lee's mom hopped on a bus headed for Washington State. She went to the local police department, and shortly after that, police got Lee out of the mission. Meanwhile, John was trying to fly under the radar, staying with friends and now avoiding the mission. But remember, Lee and his mother both entered the U.S. illegally, using paperwork John had forged for them. As the police were sorting this mess out, they had suspicions about some of this paperwork. In December 2001, both Lee and his mom were picked up by INS agents. After being housed in custody for about a month, they were both released to an INS safe house. Lee would run away again. His mother looked for him, but he was with John. He was gone. John and Lee's daily routine went from resembling normalcy with school during the day and extracurriculars in the evening to becoming mission-focused with training ops living by two rules, whatever it takes and there's no turning back. John also began teaching Lee how to resist interrogations. On the extreme end of this, John chained Lee to a tree in the snow, and Lee was so desperate to please John that he willingly, if not happily, went along with this. He wanted to earn John's approval. These activities are far removed from tossing a ball in the backyard, building model airplanes, or watching the game on TV. Instead, this was more like a one-on-one -on -one intensive training where John was developing Lee into a soldier of death to be used as an asset in the execution of John's evil plans. Although the common recounting of the DC sniper's killing spree begins in the fall of 2002 in the Maryland suburbs of the nation's capital, it actually began well before that. On February 16th of 2002, just two days before Lee's 17th birthday, the duo went to a house in Tacoma, Washington, so John could take out his frustration on another woman he viewed as an enemy. He wanted Lee to shoot and kill a woman named Isa Nichols. Nichols had done accounting work for John when he and his wife had a car repair business. Through that, Isa became friends with John's ex-wife Mildred. Isa had encouraged Mildred to divorce John, and he held a grudge for that. 
John and Lee had borrowed a 45 caliber pistol from one of John's shooting buddies, and Lee went up to the door of the house carrying it, ready to shoot the woman who answered. He knocked. A woman came to the door, and he shot her in the face. The woman had been making dinner and was changing her six-month-old's diaper when Lee knocked on the door. That child would grow up without its mother. But the woman and mother that Lee shot and killed was not Isa Nichols. It was her niece, Kenya Cook. Isa would come home to find her niece shot and bleeding out in the entryway of her home. However, Lee had passed John's test. He was ready for the mission ahead. Between February and September, the pair would traverse the country, stopping in various places, shooting and robbing whoever fit their fancy or had money or resources they wanted. On September 5th, 2002, about a month before the first string of attacks in Montgomery County, John and Lee trailed a man named Paul LaRufa in Clinton, Maryland for three days. On the third day, LaRufa had just closed his Prince George's County restaurant and thrown his laptop and the day's receipts in the back seat. As LaRufa situated himself in the driver's seat, he heard a loud sound and the window explode. Lee had run up and shot LaRufa repeatedly through the driver's side window and then reached in the back door and grabbed the laptop and the bag of money. Lee shot LaRufa six times with a 22 caliber pistol. LaRufa survived. Describing his injuries, he said, one bullet went through my arm into my chest, one went into my diaphragm, another went in my side, and one went in my neck right by my spine. While it's never fortunate to be the victim of a shooting, and Mr. LaRufa's physical pain and mental anguish should not be understated, he is lucky to be alive. Any bullet wound that doesn't cause severe and potentially lethal blood loss is likely only millimeters away from that outcome. The diaphragm is essential for breathing, and if a bullet rendered this organ inoperable, breathing would cease. Large veins and arteries run through the neck, creating significant opportunity for fatal blood loss, and had that bullet struck the spine instead of landing near it, that could have killed Mr. LaRufa before the effects of blood loss. One of the jarring things from this incident is while LaRufa is on the phone with 911, he tells the dispatcher, I don't want to die in this parking lot. And the dispatcher responds, we're not going to let that happen. LaRufa says to this day, listening to that makes him emotional, and he's just grateful for that dispatcher and everyone who saved his life. John and Lee got about $3,500 from robbing LaRufa. He hates that the proceeds from his business were used to finance the terror that followed. It's certainly not his fault. He didn't willingly donate the money. It was stolen from him, violently. The fact is, this campaign of evil was going to happen, whether it was LaRufa's money or anybody else's. John had this mission in his mind, and while we're still unclear about all the motives, we know this guy had a god complex. He had some kind of beef with authority or with the U.S. government in general, and he had a child whose mind he had warped into basically being a robot without thinking for himself. This was destined to go bad. They were on a mission, and if money was what they needed, they were going to take it from someone and did not hesitate to take lives as well. On October 2, 2002, an employee from a Michael's Craft store in Aspen Hill, Maryland, called police because a shot was fired through a window. Nobody was hit in that shooting. Given the sniper's accuracy, we're left to wonder if this shot was some sort of test that wasn't intended to strike a human target. But later the same day, the first killing takes place when 55-year-old James D. Martin, a 
a program analyst for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, is shot in the parking lot of Shopper's Food Warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland. He was there to buy groceries for his church. The 55-year-old was an amateur genealogist and a Civil War buff. He was survived by his wife and an 11-year-old son. The next day, October 3rd, would be the deadliest day of the sniper's reign of terror over the region. In the next episode, we'll chronicle the events of that day and the weeks that followed, including the bizarre capture of John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malveaux, along with their convictions and sentences, and a significant change to Lee's sentence that created the potential for him to be released from prison. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. It's like living with terrorists, you know? You know, you never know when the next next one's going to hit. Montgomery County, the district, Prince George's County, Spotsylvania. Another shooting, another innocent victim dead.